two, one, boom. Hotep Jesus. Of all the Jesuses I know, he's the Hotepiest. Social scientist and YouTube host, Hotep Jesus. How the fuck do you get a name like Hotep Jesus? The one and only Hotep Jesus. Brian Sharp, better known to the world as Hotep Jesus. Hotep Jesus. Hotep Jesus. Hotep, Hotep, Hotep Jesus. Hotep, you're a genius. HotepJesus.com. Somebody said, what do you think you are? Some kind of Hotep Jesus? Ooh, and that's I was good. Just like, ooh, that's sexy. <laughs> yes, I do think I'm Hotep Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special edition of the Griff Report. I am your host, Hotep Jesus. Hotep Jesus. Hotep, you're a genius. HotepJesus.com. And I'm joined today by, I want to say this guy has at least 185 IQ. Uh, super intellectual. I'd like everybody to welcome Charles Hayward to the platform. Charles, what's up, man? How are you? I am great. Uh, I don't have 185 IQ. At least I don't think I do, but I'm very pleased to be here. Have you ever taken an IQ test? I have not. Yeah, I'm scared. I did. I did get a perfect LSAT though, so you know, LSAT score back in the day. Oh damn! Yeah, so definitely genius level IQ here <laughs> we're dealing with. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm terrified to take the IQ test. Uh, because I'd rather just think I'm 160 as opposed to somebody telling me, actually, you're not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about a bunch of different things today. We're going to talk about, you know, uh, you know, potential for an American civil war and forms of government, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I first want to talk about business because that's just my passion. Um, and that's what I've been doing most of my life. Uh, so you um, gained your, I would say, massive wealth through the shampoo company. Uh, basically, you're a shampoo manufacturer for many big brands. We spoke in a green room and you said um, some of that stuff targeted um, black women specifically, which I thought was genius because black women, huge need for hair. But what I want to ask you is, um, you know, when it comes to business, I always tell people, usually it's only like two or three things that make something a success. It's not a whole bunch of moving parts. It's usually like one or two things. In your opinion and or in your experience from launching that shampoo situation, what were those like top three things that really moved the needle for the company or are more important for you to keep an eye on? Yeah, uh, I think uh, I'd say two things really, not even not even three things. The, the first thing is simply the ability for each of the people, for, including me, but also all, all the members of the team to get things done. Most people just can't get things done. And you don't want a team member who can't get things done. At the same time, you have to give people the independence and autonomy to, to get things done without micromanaging them or you're second guessing them if there's a, a mistake that you know, just an honest mistake. But most people just can't get things done. They, they have a list of 10 things and they do seven and they go watch Netflix. Why? I have no idea. And I know an infinite number of even successful businesses that are run by people or seemingly successful businesses. Like I used to wonder this. I would call people up and I'd leave a voicemail back when people left voicemails. Like I want to spend $100,000 with you today to buy this piece of equipment. And they would never call back. Why? No idea. Um, so I think the, the, the number one thing in business is that people, everybody in the business, whether that's one person or a hundred people or a thousand people, to make it truly successful, have to be able to and have to be focused on getting things done. And I think the other thing that made the business successful, and I, 
I can't say because obviously every business is different and every industry is siloed to some degree and so on. Uh, I think that for a long time I struggled with, well, how do I market this business? Can I try to buy some Google ads back when Google ads were new? I mean, that was 20 years ago, almost 12, 18, 15. Um, should, should I go to trade shows? Should I send out mailings? You know, there's these different traditional options. And the answer is that it's none of those. The answer is that you have to have a good reputation. And because fundamentally, any industry is a, especially a B2B kind of industry, B2C is a little bit different, but B2B, it's a word of mouth business. More or less every hair care brand, the people know each other. Or maybe they don't like hang out all the time, but they know off each other, they talk to each other occasionally and so on. And fundamentally, most of the time, the way you get new business, with some exceptions, is that if you have outbound outreach to somebody who doesn't have a current need, they're happy with their current manufacturer, say, they're like, well, you know, they, they may be polite to you, they may ignore you, but it doesn't matter. But if they have a need, whatever that need may be, their, their current manufacturer is failing, they got a huge new contract from Target or something, you know, whatever, they're not going to get on the internet and start searching for contract manufacturing companies for hair care, they're going to call two or three people they know. People who are experienced in the business, they know use different manufacturers, they'd be like, hey, you know, who do you think is a good fit for me given this need and the kind of product I have? And if you have a good reputation and you've been around long enough to establish that reputation for people to have heard of you, which is just a time thing, you can't accelerate that by advertising really, then they're going to give you a name and then they're going to call you and you know, you're going to call them back, unlike the guy who uh, who didn't call me back about the equipment. And and when and I mean, I, one of our biggest customers who will have to go uh, unnamed, um, yeah, is a woman, and she just sent in a, an email seeking out help. And I could tell it was a very small company at the time, but I could tell that she was super organized and she was going to be wildly successful. Um, but she told me later that most of the people she reached out to just ignored her because she wasn't already a big company. But I mean, I could just tell from my experience that this person was going places. I mean, it's not guaranteed, but because anything can happen to anybody, she might have been hit by a bus and that would be the end of her business. But you, you, that word of mouth is, is crucial and establishing that reputation. And it's not just a reputation, I'm kind of personalizing this, but I think the analog is true for all businesses. It's not just the reputation for having good product and being timely and communicating, um, it's a reputation for uh, honesty more than anything else. Because I think the single biggest failing that a lot of businesses have other than, than not, uh, not calling people back is failure to communicate. And again, that sounds kind of stupid, right? You know, it sounds like the thing you'd read in a self-help book, but communication, all customers want is to be told what's going on. But most companies won't do that. And that goes back to the first thing, because everyone's afraid of taking responsibility, afraid of being entangled, especially if there's a problem, because when customers call, it's frequently because there's a problem. So if you empower, again, that sounds kind of stupid, but if you empower your employees to get things done and you tell them to make sure to communicate to the customer, then all this stuff happens automatically and instantaneously without Charles Haywood having to get involved at all. And that increases your reputation. Anyway, that's kind of long response, but but that, like that's that. my my off the cuff response. No, that's valuable. I'm writing this down. Um, I got to get all in your business now. <laughs> uh, 
I wrote down capital spend. I want to know how the capital was spent at the early stages and uh, how the business was operating, right? So we're talking about manufacturing here. Was this manufacturing here? Was it in China? How did that work? So at least, did you buy your equipment? How did that work? I, I'll answer all those questions. So um, shampoo manufacturing basically consists of uh, mixing things in tanks. Uh, some, of it, some of it is a reactive chemistry, but most of it is just blending, sometimes under heat and vacuum and so on. And it's different, like my business was different than say color cosmetics or aerosol manufacturing, which are different but related manufacturing areas, which I know something about, but I wasn't focused on. And 80% of it was hair care, but we also did things like skin lotions and, and so on. So basically topical non-ingestibles. Like if someone came to me and said, I wanna make something that people swallow, not interested, not, you know, too much risk, not my area, don't do that. Uh, or toothpaste, don't do toothpaste. Um, so that's just this is the way we did. So I started the business. I used to be a lawyer, a mergers and acquisitions lawyer, but I didn't like that because I wanted to be rich. And so I I quit that my lawyer job after my wife announced she was pregnant with our first kid and uh, and took my income down to 70 grand, returned to Indiana, where I'm from, from Chicago to take a business job because I wanted to learn the magic of business, what happened inside a business. And the answer is there is no magic because you just need the right people and the right attitude. There is no secret sauce other than I think the secret sauce that I already discussed. And so the my wife announced she was pregnant with our second child. I said, hey, baby, how about I quit this job and go become an entrepreneur and find a business to buy, even though we don't have any savings and, you know, we have a child on the way with one already. She's like, sure, baby, that sounds great. <laughs> Why she said this is unclear to me. Maybe she just thought I was crazy and I would like go postal if she didn't say yes. No, I'm just kidding. She was very supportive. Uh, and and uh, so I, I cast around for a business to buy. And I, as far as the capital assets go, I didn't know anything about the shampoo business, but a, a similar business had gone out of business because its owner had died, founder had died. So the bank auctioned off its assets for like 6 million bucks. And I scraped together 50 grand and bought whatever percentage 50 grand is of 6 million in terms of capital assets, which boiled down to one mixing tank for mixing together shampoos and so on. And one fill head, which is basically a device used to fill bottles uh, and kind of a jury rigged fill head. And, uh, and so, and I didn't have a place to put this stuff. I didn't have any customers. I'm like, I'm going to have a shampoo manufacturing business. Just completely insane in retrospect. So by the time it was done, 15 years later, because I sold it in, in 2020, uh, it had acquisition cost, probably 15 million in capital assets. Um, and all of that with a little bit of exception of some leased equipment, leased to own, uh, was just funded out of, out of income. So it, the problem is that it's very difficult to do that. I don't, I'm not quite sure how I pulled that off because you have a chicken and the egg problem. You, I, manufacturing of anything is a fairly capital intensive process or very capital intensive depending. And so most people to get started, they're like, well, I don't have 5 million or 10 million. And I don't know where I'm gonna get 5 million or 10 million, or to be able to make the debt service on 5 million or 10 million. So I guess I just won't have a manufacturing business. I think the, the answer is that uh, you can, you have to basically uh, stair step or leapfrog and you have to accept a, a large amount of uncertainty and risk to do that. But it does go back to what I said earlier. If you start small, it gives you the time to start establishing a reputation. You start with small customers, 
you learn on them. I mean, let's be honest, when you're starting off a business, you learn with people who are stupid enough to you know, you know, pick you as their, as their guy and you try not to screw them. And, uh, and then it, it, over time, you, you pay for it out of, out of current income if you can. We, we were able to do that. Um, we had some lucky breaks. We got some stuff cheap. You can buy a lot of stuff cheap off of eBay and some, some auction sites. Uh, I think it's, it's doable. But it's uh, it's a uh, it's a narrow needle to thread. So when you say you bought this tank, right? I guess it's inside the manufacturing facility, and the owner there is like, "Hey, this tank is yours. Whatever you want to put in it, you know, that's your thing." Is that what that looks like? From the when it's set up on on our side with the customer, you mean? Well, no. You said you paid fifty thousand for the tank and the fill head, right? Right. So you go in there. You, get, you go in there with a metal saw, and you cut the pipes, and you take it out, and then you pay for it. And then you have to find a place to set it up. Oh, right? you had because, to set it. You had to find a place to set it up too. Oh yeah, yeah. No, oh yeah, damn. So you know, I had no place to put any of this stuff. I mean, it, it uh, a bunch of it went in. Uh, well, smaller stuff, very small. And like my, one of my favorite stories is that uh, the they were auctioning off all of this uh, this this stuff, and they threw all of the business records for the old business in the trash. Mm. And I went to the the guy running the auction. I'm like, hey, can I have those business records? Because I thought they'd be useful. And he said, no. So I went and took them out anyway, uh, which, <laughs> which, which, because they're trash. I mean, legally, I'm entitled to, I'm entitled to take them. They're out of the public street in the trash bin. And, uh, and so those are actually very useful for understanding a business that I, I didn't know anything about. I mean, there wasn't anything confidential like formulas or anything, but it, it, it's just something that, that helps you. So you have to be aggressive in that sense. And so you, what happens is you have this tank and you have this fill head and you have them on a truck. And then I found a place to sublet. And then you have to put the stuff in there and hire a plumber to route water to it because one of the the number one raw material for hair care manufacturing is water and you have to have a very purified water because if you use just city water it causes all sorts of problems with the product also you can have contamination microbiological contamination which is a, a, a like a death knell for your business so setting it all up uh you know i scraped together the money i did a bunch of the work myself and eventually in a, in a small space that i found to uh to sublet now, you mentioned that you spoke to your wife about this decision and, you know, she was like, OK, good job. You know, I'm down. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I also heard you say something like a career is not for a woman. Yes. Um, what else did you say? You said a career is not for a woman and um, something about being public facing. The man should be more public facing and a woman should be more behind the scenes, right? Yes. Uh, in an ideally structured society, that's exactly correct. Why do you believe that? It, because it's the natural order of things. It's in the sense that the, the my goal, and this obviously shades away from the business into the political philosophy, but if we're to have a flourishing society, it has to be based upon reality. And the reality is that a, a well-structured society, men as you put it, or as you put it, channeling me, men uh, are, are more naturally the public facing uh, part of the partnership, husband and wife, simply because, I mean, there's biological reasons for that. And there's also psychological reasons for that. Men desire to provide and protect. Women desire to, to be provided and protected and to nurture. Men just simply don't have that same nurturing instinct. And so that, that goes, career, that's, what, and that's my marriage is a good example of that. My wife and I were both originally big law firm mergers and acquisitions lawyers. And she dropped out of that after a year or two. And then as, when we got married and started having kids, she adopted 
uh, this less public facing, but yet crucial role in the partnership that is the family. How, so did you have to convince her of that? Or she was like, nope, I know my role. I'm a housemaker and that's just is what it is. That, that's actually a great question because you know, we, we grew up, both of us, she grew up in Australia and I grew up in Indiana, as we were talking about in the green room. Australia is a bit more exciting than Indiana. And, and uh, we both grew up absorbing the propaganda. That is, she grew up thinking, well, I don't probably don't want to have any kids. I want to have a big firm law career or, or you know some other big career. And I was... I mean, I've always been, I'd say, generically right wing, and I, I, I'm ashamed to admit that in the early 2000s, I was a strong supporter of George W. Bush, God rot him. And uh, and so, so I think over time, we just shifted together, which, of course, is, is a blessing to me because you know, other people, you know, most people face more more conflict, I think. But I think we just we shifted together into realizing that wasn't really the uh, the way to live and that we had been propagandized into into a, a approach to life that just didn't make sense. And when I say didn't make sense, I don't mean didn't make sense for us. I mean, it doesn't make sense for anybody, uh, but we of course only have control over our own lives. And so that's the direction that we took. But I wouldn't say it was an overnight process either. I mean, when we started dating as young lawyers in the early 2000s, you know, I figured out I have a house in Hinsdale. Hinsdale is a you know Chicago suburb where a bunch of lawyers have fancy ass houses. We'd have a house in Hinsdale and some nannies and maybe two kids. Uh, I, I mean, life has ended up very different than that. But I, I think I look back on my old thinking and I, I, I think, what was I thinking? But better change is better late than never, I guess. So what is the what was the catalyst that you know? Did you guys watch an Alex Jones show together? <laughs> <laughs> like... No, I, I didn't watch Alex Jones. Is um. No, I think the I think I can't. I have some pieces on the on the on my site where my wife uh, speaks in her own voice. But channeling it from my wife's perspective, I think the change for her was the realization that she did in fact want to have children, and that when you want to have children, that largely changes your perspective on everything, whether that's your marriage, your career, whatever, your entire relationship to the world. And I think that I. Uh, it was more that I adopted something that I always realized was true, but that when you're surrounded by people who deny reality, you kind of have a strong incentive to not inquire too closely into the uh, falsities of that of that supposed reality. So I went to I went to law school at the University of Chicago, which is a relatively conservative law school, or was back then. But you know, everyone everyone bought into the modern pieties of how. Uh, you know, it, the equality of men and women requires men and women to do everything identically, as yeah. opposed to so. It, it, and so, I, I wasn't the kind of guy to necessarily raise my voice and, and fight back against that, except uh, except later. I think for me, it was more that I just became my own man. I mean, the children matter. I mean, they're having children is important, but that that per se didn't change my thinking. Other than well, I have to protect and provide for these children. Uh, I think I would say that the the biggest change was probably in in my wife's approach to it. I mean, she's not here and she can't can't speak to it. But I think that the um, that she would if she had said no, I really want a career, and it, it's not like I, I would have or could have said. Well, that's not the way we're going, baby. You know, get back in the house. <laughs> it's really more dictated by her than, than by me, honestly. Oh, wow. So you got lucky. Um, I did. Yeah. Very much so. And which means you picked the right woman. I did. Um, <laughs> okay. Let's talk about a, a, a hypothetical scenario. You're dating, you know, you're, you're, let's say you're, you're in, a, in a marriage. Your wife says, hey, I want to start a small business. 
Is that a red flag or are you supporting her in her small business or how does that supposed to work? Or you say, no, look, what's the idea and I'll execute it. A small business isn't a career. I mean, historically speaking, it, say medieval times, women ran a significant amount of the businesses in medieval times. I mean, this, it, people have like this completely distorted vision of history on many levels. And one of them is the role of women in history. So small businesses, home-based business in particular, are a something that has long been something that women have traditionally done because they can organize uh, the their family life responsibilities in coordination with that. In fact, Mary Harrington had a recent book. Um, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name. Uh, there was a lot much. Mary Harrington is a is a feminist writer with the conservative bent in some areas, and I have a, did a review of it, and, uh, and now I can't remember the name, but it, 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 talks, uh, it talks a bunch about this, how the vision we have of women's role being staying at home and isolated entirely from the outside world is a most largely a product of the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution, where women who worked uh, outside the home started going to wage jobs outside the house in the factory, and this idea of household work disappeared because the only people who couldn't work anymore, uh, who women who didn't have to work anymore, were upper class women who could sit at home and you know faint on their couches and lead the Jane Austen lifestyle, as opposed to being integrated in the family economy. So the answer is that that uh, a small business actually makes a tremendous amount of sense for 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 women, and it's a good example. I mean, when I say that the husband should be the public face uh, of the family, obviously when you run a small business, you have a public facing element of that. So it, 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 this isn't like a purda, the, the Middle Eastern custom of, of having women be in seclusion. This is the idea of like that the primary public facing role is the husband, but if the, the woman has a small business, she would have a public role as well. That said, it can't be something that's a career. And I think the distinction is important. A career yeah. in this context means I go to the office on the, what was something like Tucker Carlson said the other day, like I strive to be the, the vice president for international bonds. And so I work every weekend. <laughs> you know, that's just dumb if you have a family. Mm. Okay. What if this small business has blue chip potential? Still allowing her to do that? Blue chip potential meaning what? It can become a unicorn of a billion dollar valuation? Yeah. Um. No, because the, I mean, I don't know what that looks like exactly, but typically those, the kind of, any kind of business that has the potential to be a massive business, I mean, everything has the potential, but the the amount of, for example, outside investment and dealing with outside people that's required to even begin a business like that is, uh, is, is extreme. So let's say my wife comes to me and she says, you know, baby, I, I hear all this stuff you're saying, but I've discovered anti-gravity and I think I can monetize this to the sky. I'll be like, okay, that sounds fine, baby. I'll, I'll go ahead and monetize that. Um, and so, you know, I mean, in, in practice, that's that's what I, what I think would happen, and that's what I think should happen. Uh, women's small businesses in this context, women with families, especially women with children, I think should be uh, you know, ideally and socially limited to things that are part of the household economy, not designed to like move to an office building. Wow. So she comes up with the anti gravity idea, and you're like, thanks. I'll take yeah. it from here. Yeah, basically. Probably. I mean, your mileage may vary, as they say. But it may, the, the real answer is that- I like this I'm gonna, guy. But here's the real answer. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disappear 
both my wife and I are going to be in some windowless room in Langley while they like extract from us <laughs> how we figured out anti-gravity. I will never see a penny. That's what it really happened. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That is definitely what's going to happen. <laughs> Super base response. Um, I love that response. Um, you know, I always joke about, you know, women, they belong in the kitchen, da, 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 which is a euphemism, right? But I don't mean it literally. But, you know, they're supposed to be the caretakers. What mm -hmm. are the detrimental effects when we don't balance these gender roles? Is it what we're seeing in society today or or what is the long term effects? Where are we headed? What what could possibly go wrong? Especially, <laughs> well, uh, everything is going wrong. Just look around. So I, I think that the um, within a marriage on a very micro level, as between husband and wife, the creating what amounts to competition between husband and wife. And you know, say your wife has a career and she has a boss, you know, she's she's looking to please another man, which is never a winning recipe for for harmony in a marriage. I mean, maybe she has a woman who's a boss, but whatever, you get the idea. She's looking to please other people as a primary goal. Not that a wife's primary goal should be to please her husband or that a husband's primary goal should be to please his wife, but one should strive to please one's spouse. And if you spend all your time at four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, taking calls from someone else who wants, you know, wants to be pleased, that's not real good. Uh, and so I think on a micro level, that's that's important. I think that having men and women being competition in the job market fuels any number of, of horrors. Uh, it, it, it fuels fake GDP and the pursuit of GDP as a bogus societal goal. You know, the old, the old people have pointed out that if you, if the way GDP is calculated, if you have two women and each of whom raises her kid, nothing is added to GDP. But if they hire each other to, to raise each other's kids, then a whole bunch is added to GDP, which mm -hmm. is obviously stupid. So bringing women into the workforce in the quantities they did hasn't done us any favors. It, the birth rate is, I mean, I've been pointing out for years, as far as I'm concerned, Musk is a latecomer to the, the, the real problem is that the precipitous coming population crash and the having women removed from the traditional roles of nurturer and caretaker and ruler of the home necessarily means you're going to have fewer children because if you're working 80 hours a week as the vice president for international bonds well you know having another another johnny or jane doesn't seem real attractive does it and you just and even though the, the reality is whatever they say that most women desperately want children and so you're causing psychological harm to both men and women that, which is one of the reasons, no doubt, why a huge percentage of the population are medicated with psychotropic drugs. Everyone's fat. I don't know. I mean, look around you. I can't. I mean, off the leaving aside things like foreign wars, of domestic problems, an awful lot of them can be traced back to the distortion of natural of what I call sex role realism, where men and women do what they're best suited for, rather than what some ideologue tells them they should be doing. So the way I was thinking about this was modern middle class two income household right you know especially with black men right black men are start right now are being outpaced by black women mm -hmm. um as far as income is concerned right they're moving into the corporate businesses the white liberals promoting them at a faster rate than ever how is a man supposed to manage that when his wife is making you know six figures and he's you know maybe making less than her is he supposed to say look i'm the man Quit your job. We're going to operate off my income. We're going to downscale everything. Is that feasible? Well, that's, that's a really tough question because the answer is 
it, it's always feasible or almost always feasible, but not without extreme pain. And that leaves aside the psychological dynamics within within the marriage, which are obviously destructive. I mean, that's one of the, I mean, seven right now, 70% of divorces are initiated by women, you know, and things like that merely increase it because the woman looks down on her husband, the husband resents the wife. I mean, that's not a recipe for marital harmony. But more broadly, in some or more narrowly, just in terms of strict feasibility, uh, you... <clears throat> You know, I've been poor and I've been rich. <clears throat> I've been very poor. And being rich is better, let me assure you. But the uh, the uh, the the fact is that most people could substantially cut back their lifestyle if they had a good enough reason. But they just can't do it because that's not the way society society looks down on that so much that and people are so used to it that having all of these these things and people and even if you're willing to cut out the netflix and have a smaller house and so on there are areas of the country now that housing alone is completely unsupportable unless we have two incomes well and so you say well you should move well <clears throat> this is like those people in national review a couple of years ago who are like well all these stupid poor people should just uh who can't get jobs in the rust belt they just need to move but that that's that's a societally bad prescription too. People shouldn't be atomized. They shouldn't have to move away from their family and their entire network of support and the people they've known their whole lives just so they can find their affordable apartment to rent. So it's not a, it's not at all always feasible. I think it's a lot more feasible than it than people think it is. And they don't what stops them isn't that it's unfeasible, but that they're not willing to make the sacrifices. And I understand why that is. Uh, but it's still it's still feasible in a lot of cases. Uh, what about when a guy has uh, entrepreneurial spirit? Should his wife be involved? In absolutely, but like my wife is, <clears throat> was always extremely heavily involved behind the scenes in the business. No, I mean not in terms of running the spreadsheets. I'm a spreadsheet guy. I'm I'm a numbers cruncher. But it, in a couple areas, strategic advice, whether that's employees or people who need to become former employees or, or customers or, or things like that uh strategic advice uh the for the for the business um i'm not a good judge of character uh, i'm a terrible manager like i'm not a terrible manager in the sense that i do bad at management because i know i'm bad at management so i just don't manage because i know i'll be bad at it uh, but it that also means you need to hire the right people and having someone who's a better judge of character is very valuable. So even on a narrow thing that's not really strategic, uh, I, I, she would play a lot of roles. And also just simply talking about the day-to-day -day because when you're wrapped up in your own head and you're an entrepreneur, I mean, as you know, where you have what you, I call the racetrack, all the things that cycle round and round and round in your head. and But it's in your head. And talking about things on the racetrack with someone else whom you trust who's not looking to grift off you in some way is an extremely valuable thing. And we would, one of our employees once told us that the way he viewed the world was that any decision that came from me uh, was, had been harmonized before it left uh, the house. So may all may, we would harmonize all major decisions. So my wife is extremely heavily involved uh, in the, in the business from, from start to finish. Uh, it's it just that she didn't have any, you know, kind of relevant public facing role. Mm, mm. 
Valuable information there. Valuable information there. What about the alpha woman, right? There's an alpha woman who's, like I said, you know, she's um, excelling in life. Is she dateable? You know, yeah. uh, 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 as the, well, I, I know with alpha woman, you type, you, you speak of. And uh, and when I was younger, much younger, I used to have what I called Charles's seven or so great rules. And one of them was never fall in love with a woman with no close female friends. So, uh, so the answer is and the alpha woman has no close female friends. And, you know, I'm right. And so uh, and so, no, she's not just she, she's not. Well, it depends on what you mean by dateable, but I'm old fashioned. So I'll take that to to be the equivalent of falling in love or at least the possibility of of falling in love. So the answer is no. Alpha women are poison. Mm, they're poison. <laughs> Poor relationship. I mean, they make very successful what they do. Right. But you know, if you know, whatever the opposite of happy wife, happy life is, is uh, I'm dating an alpha woman. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, this is some of the best red pill content we've ever seen on the internet. We, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta bring uh, Charles on over to the red pill, man. Get him on fresh and fit or something like that, and, and, and talk to these young boys. I love the way you put some of this information. All right, let's um, let's change gears here a little bit. Um, I'm new to white people history, you know, so. Um, when I was younger, obviously I learned the Halton Milfin fake news version of history. And, you know, ever since Trump came into office, I've been diving more into the Russian revolution because I feel like that was really, uh, the turning point for the West. Mm -hmm. Um, just in, in all ways, it seems like that. Um, so it seems like there was a transition from feudalism to a democratic Republic, right? In Russia? Oh, uh, or in general. Uh, in Russia, Germany, sure. um, yeah, uh, the Japan, although Japan sort of moved into communism <laughs> or definitely <laughs> moved into communism. Um, but there was a, a push away from feudalism, um, to democratic Republic. And to me, I think feudalism probably operated better than a democratic Republic. Would you agree or disagree? It's a very broad question. I mean, I, I'm yeah. also fascinated with Russia. Uh, my father, who's dead, uh, was a, a he taught Russian history at, oh, at wow. Purdue. So I, he's not Russian, but I mean, he, he was one of these guys. That was his expertise, and he spoke a lot of languages. And his, his focus was 19th century, not 20th century Russian history. But I've, I also have always found Russian history fascinating, and I, I do think that the hinge of fate is, in many ways, is is the Russian Revolution. But the and feudalism is such a broad concept, and democratic uh, liberalism, uh, democratic republic is is also a broad concept. I mean, just moving backwards, I mean, we people tell us now that we have a democratic republic in, in the United States, but you know, who really believes that? I mean, we have an olig oligarchy. We have the, what I would call a clownish oligarchy. So, I mean, they may have bear the trappings of the skin suit of a democratic republic. So that said, at, at some point, obviously, feudalism or constitutional monarchy gave way to actual democratic republics. There was a time in the 19th and 20th centuries where people were actually switching from one system to the other. Uh, I think that to some extent, you have to, when you're looking backward at big historical changes like that, that are not of the type that have happened before. The, I mean, when I say not of the type that happened before, monarchies have given place to other monarchies throughout history 
and that doesn't tell us anything new. But when you when you introduce something totally new in history, like a democratic republic or communism, it's hard to get into the mindset of the people who who did that and what they were thinking at the time. But you do have to give them a lot of leeway in the sense that in the 1920s, for example, it wasn't completely insane to say, I think communism is the future. Communism is going to lead to a utopia. Communism, now it seems completely insane to us because we see what the actual results of that are. But you know, all the smart people agreed that capitalism was suffering a lot of debilities. Communism seemed like it might be a thing. You couldn't point to all the dead people yet because they weren't dead yet. So, and the same thing is true for, for switches from, say, monarchies to democratic republics in, in Europe. It sounds good. And in some cases, it can be good, right? You look at the American experience. You say, well, look, in America, in the late 18th century, they switched from a monarchy to a democratic republic. And they're you know, a great nation, you know, which is aspiring to be the greatest nation on earth. You know, why can't it be that way for everybody? And we can just ignore what happened in France a few years later, because that's just an outrider. And who cares about that? <laughs> anyway, so it's you can make an argument throughout the 19th and even the 20th centuries that that a democratic republic, meaning basically more distribution of political power among the population at large, it was the wave of the future. Uh, well, you know, that was then and this is now. And the ancient Greek historical thinkers always said that democracy is the worst form of government because it led to the worst results. Even though all forms of government can lead to bad results, democracy is the worst. And so what we see is we see democratic republics that were normally originally set up as not democratic, that is, having a democratic elements, but very much not a democracy, have been forced over time into what's called a democracy, but is really a manipulated oligarchy with an extractive ruling class raping the rest of us. I mean, that's not what I was promised in 1862 or whenever, you know, in France. I mean, so it's not working out. I don't know what that means we should do next, but we shouldn't, you know, doubling down on failure is never a winning strategy. So my my theory is the oligarchy recognized, for example, the power that Russia had, um, the power that Germany had, and decided that let's overthrow that government with this concept of a constitution or a democratic uh -huh. republic. Uh, in some ways, it was uh, brought about through communism, right? Because um, communism is sort of like the in-between, right? Like that, that's, that's sort of like the bridge between what happened in Russia and Germany, right? Between, you know, moving yeah, from the, the king. You, you had the Tsar overthrown like six months before the Bolshevik Revolution. Yeah. Uh, but the large segments of the Russian upper class have been militating for a move away from monarchy for decades. So there's definitely an organized program for that. Yeah. Okay. See, there you go. All right. So there is some validity to what I'm saying here. So it seems like the oligarchy was like, look, we want these resources in these countries and we want access to them. Let's topple the monarchy and bring in this new thing. And then what it does is, uh, I, I say it just adds too many cooks in the kitchen. Like Congress is just way too many cooks in the kitchen, right? That's why nothing ever really good gets done. But also what it does is it, um, it creates openings for, uh, uh, somebody being co-opted, right? So they say, say uh -huh. oh, they've got a senator in you know, this state. I'll go through him. Like we saw Senator Menendez getting bribes from Egypt, right? Yeah. Whereas if it's just a king, you know, it's a little bit harder to intercept that when you have 
in contrast the democratic republic you can intercept in many different ways by this guy by that guy by this guy by that mm -hmm. guy. does that is that is that plausible it, it makes a lot of sense i mean it's related to the theory that the monarchy is superior because the king takes care of the long-term interests of the country because you know, his property and his his children's property in a way that someone who's elected doesn't does he just looking to get his and get out right. i mean that's not universally true but and obviously king has ministers who can be bribed in the same way so it's not the king you know unless the king is personally making all the decisions which is impossible in any at any scale that you're always going to have avenues for that but by the same token ministers are looking to 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 the longer term in a well-run monarchy in a way that that politicians aren't. So I think it's definitely true that that a democratic republic or democracy or whatever you want to call it is subject to these kind of forms of being suborned that are that are very damaging. Yeah. So which leads me to my next point is I'm a, I'm a huge fan of becoming a dictator. Um, and, and I like dictatorships. I think Muammar Gaddafi did a fabulous job being a dictator until Hillary Clinton killed him and his family. Um, so you once mentioned in an interview that you liked Lenin, which mm -hmm. is, um, interesting because I always make jokes about being the black Stalin where, <laughs> <laughs> where I, you know, I'm like, communism's bad unless I run it. Right. Mm -hmm. Why did you say you liked Lenin? Well, you know, Stalin got to start as a bank robber. So if if I would, I'd be careful about bank robbing, you know, because it's like a quintessential stupid crime. Maybe you should find some other way. Uh, but, uh, uh, what, when I say I like Lenin, uh, perhaps a better locution would be admire uh, aspects of Lenin. Like Lenin's yeah. probably burning in hell. Uh, you know, not that I'm, I can presume to say, right. but you know, he, he wasn't a good guy, right. and um, he was a very bad. Guy. But when I say I admire Lenin, I admire among other things, his uh, his discipline, the, the that is his ability over decades to stay focused on a specific set of goals that he had, and when mm. he achieved those goals, not to to maintain that discipline, rather than, for example, saying he was very, for example, aware that his revolution was fragile and he wasn't going to spend resources on supporting every red revolution around the globe because he had bigger fish to fry at home, whereas his ideological comrades were like. You know, Comrade Lenin, our red brothers in Finland need us. We must send an army there. And he's like, we don't got an extra army. Shut your mouth. And, so, so, and that's just, it's a very disciplined way of approaching the world. And he, he, he didn't have a he didn't have other vices, which I also admire. And he dressed well, which which I admire. Um, but the the Lenin is admirable in contrast to a lot of modern day political leaders who are left and right. Democrat and Republican are pretty much 100% clowns. Like, I mean, there's a few exceptions, but certainly everyone prominent is a clown. I mean, there's probably some people who aren't prominent, and maybe that's their function of TV and, and what have you. But the fact is, Lenin had a lot of characteristics that helped make him successful. I mean, obviously, he also had a lot of luck. He wouldn't, the fact that he ended up on top wasn't at all dictated, and he needed a ton of lucky bricks. He's the guy who flipped a coin 50 times and it came up heads every time. Nonetheless, uh, he's a winner and uh, was a winner. And, and and a lot of the stuff he did is is admirable because that's the kind of spirit that one needs in order to administer a, uh, a political movement. Yeah, yeah. That's what I like about studying history. You can find somebody who's, you know, pretty much evil. And then at least if you have a smart mind, you 
take what you like and you leave the rest, right? And there's, yeah. there's a lot to be learned from it. And I think there's a lot to be learned from communism. I think the most interesting thing about communism is how they're able to take over power so quickly, um, which I don't think is possible today. Um, I think today they're operating more of like a Fabian socialist type philosophy where, you know, little by little will take power, right? And, and sort of change the complexion of the country. Is that accurate, what I just said? Well, it depends what you mean by communist. I mean, you know, people who are overt communists, as in like I read the Mark, Marx, Lenin, and Engels, uh, I, I think they're also pretty thin on the ground nowadays. Yeah. Uh, and so, well, I, mean, I, I mean, I use generically use the term the left, meaning the, the way I define it, the, the political movement born in the Enlightenment, reified in 1789, of people, ideologues who place uh, emancipation from all unchosen bonds and forced egalitarianism in the service of a utopia, that's their political program. And I think certainly and what you've seen, the long march through the institutions, is the left using the salami slicing strategy to take over uh, essentially all of the centers of power in our society. I think you see people saying things like, well, the left is now going to start rolling back and consolidating their gains. There's no historical evidence for that. The nature of the left is to always overplay its hand. And there's no instances to the contrary. So we can expect more of the same attempts, even though they're getting diminishing returns from you know, whatever the modern day equivalent of the communist is. The communists were simply a manifestation of the underlying left impulse that dominated much of the 20th century. It's something else now, something that's maybe a little bit less coherent and you can't place a specific label on, but it's all the same thing, ultimately. So this term classical liberalism, right? I see people throw this around. And from my research, I'm like, um, I'm pretty sure it's the same thing as, or, you know, the, the the genesis of what we have from the left now. So I call classical liberalism some bullshit. Um, am I uh, remotely cl uh, 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 close well, I'm about to write a whole piece on this, but the short version is I 100% agree, and I'll, I'll quote you. I, I call classical liberalism some bullshit. I'm going to put that in now <laughs> as my lead-in. It's really tiresome to someone like me. You know, I try to stay off Twitter, but I'm, I'm sucked into it all the time because, you know, I lack discipline, unlike Lenin. And uh, Lenin would have been on Twitter wasting his time like me. Anyway, and uh, and um, I hear all these, you know, you know, losers and boomers, like, uh, you know, I don't like the, the woke. Uh, we just need the principles of classical liberalism. I'm like, you know, dude, that, yeah, that's what got you where you are now. So, you know, shut up. <laughs> that's what I thought. I was like, wait, I felt like I was so alone because every time I, I come after liberalism, they're like, it's not classicalism. I'm like, isn't it the same thing? I'm like, yes, but I felt alone. And now here no. you are saying I'm right. You're totally right. You're totally right. I endorse what you have to say. Let's go. Yeah, it, it, it just seems like the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So, yep. well, there, it's paved with the intention to create a utopia. I mean, my entire set of political thoughts revolves around we should need to accept reality what it is and allow people to flourish under that rather than saying if we change these things by just killing a few people, then everyone will, will be happy forever. I mean, no one, I mean, that's just not the way the world works. We need to to maximize human flourishing given the constraints that are placed upon us, obviously removing those constraints when feasible, but, uh, and I don't mean like social constraints. I think all social constraints should be multiplied like 800 fold. I mean, uh, engineering constraints, like we need more free energy, we need th those kind of things. Yeah, so trying to create this utopia, which is impossible, right? Um, 
and happens to be a goal of communism, happens to be a goal of anarchism, uh, even um, libertarian anarchism, mm -hmm. um, you know, this goal of utopianism. Where, where... So let me just tell you my theory and you can tell me what you think, right? I believe that the only role of government should be military, right? And then everything else should be settled uh, by the private market. Dueling? What's that? Dueling? Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, or we just, you know, make them uh, go see uh, Joe Rogan and Dana White and your UFC it out, you know? <laughs> um, but, you know, you know, I'm saying that from a perspective of, um, you know, there's too much regulations in the market you know, which, which I'm not a favor of. Um, but let me, let me try and form, uh, form my thought here. Cause I, I sort of lost my train of thought mm -hmm. when we were talking about, um, dueling. Um, sorry. No, it's all good. It's all good. So, okay. So just government. And I, 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 I believe that in order to make a better society, we should do that through, through social engineering and marketing and advertising and changing the culture. Uh, as opposed to setting laws and mandates. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what do you think about that? Well, I, I, so the first part, I, mean, I believe in what I call a, a, it's like you're setting up an ideal society, a government of limited ends and unlimited means. And the military is the best example of that. Like one of the limited ends of the government should be border defense. I mean, that's just obvious, yes. right? And, yes. and it should have essentially unlimited ends to that that purpose. Right. Like enough to like kill all the people who want to come across the border. I, I don't mean the southern border necessarily. I just mean people who want to invade the country and take over. They should get bombed to smithereens, and that's the role of the government, right? Correct. Everybody can get behind that. Yes. Uh, I think the government also has other limited ends uh, as well, but the military is the is the the biggest one. And I think that the almost every function the government has should be done on the basis of subsidiarity. So if the state, if the local government should do it, the state government shouldn't do it, much less the federal government. The only things the federal government should even think about are things that can't be handled by states or localities. Uh, at the same time, I think that the, you know, I think that the culture, cultural change, as you suggest, is extremely important. I think our culture is rotten in about 800 different ways. And it is true that laws uh, are inadequate. That is the only way you can have a virtuous society, as kind of a shorthand, is by having social stigma, where it's enforced by the people in the society as a whole. Boom. The people in society as a whole aren't enforcing the rules because they're expressing contempt or, or you know, ostracizing people who aren't adhering to whatever the social norms are, then uh, all the government the rules in the world won't change it. You, you still, those two things still need to go together to a certain extent. I don't know what exactly that extent is. I think it has to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. But certainly, in order to renew America, say, passing more laws is going to do nothing. If America is to be renewed, it'd be because the people decide to take it in a new direction. And then maybe over time, their legislators pass new laws or set up a new structure where laws buttress that in, in, in some way. But ultimately, laws that are socially oriented have to be an expression of what the people want. Uh, and reinforcement rather than some some mandate or dictate. I and mean, that's as obvious that if you take a people who are not virtuous or have the wrong social structure or, or, or thinking and pass laws, that's just a waste of your time. So, I, 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 but the problem is that we're, we're very far from the right place on all of those things. Or from this, you know, how much the government does, how much the government interferes, 
the, the what people do socially. I mean, it's a, it's all all a mess. So theoretically, that's my theory. But how you get from where we are to there beats me. Um, massive ad advertising campaigns, um, uh, uh, reformation of Hollywood. Um, that would help. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I, on the other hand, advertising can't. I mean. Especially among the young, I think advertising gets you somewhat diminishing returns. Um, so I'm not sure that it would change what people think. And in order to have those advertising campaigns, people in power would have to adopt the new views. That is my views, which I think everyone should adopt. And last I saw, the people in power were not lining up to adopt my views. <laughs> yeah. So when they do and then they start advertising, maybe it'd have an effect. But again, I, I don't see a path to that, unfortunately. So when I say advertising, what I'm saying is, for example, if you have a shampoo bottle, right? Uh, and you're advertising shampoo as a shampoo brand, um, affirming in all of those ads, mother, father, child, right? Instead yeah. of, you know, some, and then the way the women are dressed in the ad, the way they speak in the ad. Like, I think some of these things could have subconscious ramifications yes, when done properly, right? Yeah, absolutely. But the problem is that, you know, you, you even suggest that and like you know, people say, well, well, that's what the Nazis did, isn't it? Right. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, I, so it, it, anyway, how to get to here to there is, is a problem. Hopefully we can, uh, we can solve. Yeah. So what about a religious state? I, I, I believe in a, in, in having a religious state. I love how Islam operates, you know, uh, do, do, are you a fan of saying, look, we are now going to be a nation of Christianity or some other religion? I, I think Christianity should be the established religion, but I, I, that's totally different from a Muslim state where what the, the goal tends to be theocracy, the combining of the state and the religious and secular functions. Yes, that's uh, what well, I agree with. Yeah. So, I mean, well, this is little known in America, but the, the Byzantine Eastern Roman Empire ideal not often realized in practice was what they called symphony, which is where the, the state and religious uh, bodies cooperated for the, their, their common goals, which is different than what you saw in Western Europe, where you had constant struggles because the Pope took the position that he was supreme over the secular rulers. And of course, shockingly, the secular rulers didn't think much of that. So that led to constant tension. Now, obviously, symphony has its own set of pitfalls because human nature being what it is, people frequently will say they're cooperating when really they're trying to get one up on the other. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, but but in theory, you, 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 what you should have, ideally, again, is a state where Christianity is kind of the official religion, where you you uh, face social penalties and uh, you know, it's harder to work in government if you're not uh, Christian. But no one's chasing you down if you're not if you're not Christian. It's just hard. It's a harder position in society, and that the Christian Church as a whole uh, works with the state in order to achieve the flourishing of the people. I mean, that's ideal. But yeah. you know, you have to have an ideal. You have to start somewhere. Yeah, I also want to bring shaming back. You talked about ostracization. You know, ostracization. I, you know, I, I want to bring shaming back. You know, shaming women for some of the clothes that they wear and. Um, you know, how they operate and, and, and the beliefs that they have. And I think this should be part of what well, I know was part of early America, early America, you know, because it's like, you know, some people say, you know, well, I think you're, you're a big fan of Christianity. You're obviously a Christian. You're a believer in Jesus. And um, but, you know, many people argue Christianity has failed us, whereas with Islam, their women aren't running OnlyFans accounts. <laughs> Well, th that's true. I mean, Christianity has failed us in America, but that and that is 
precisely a failure of stigmatizing and shaming. That is, I, I, I randomly I heard on the radio and the other day one of these 50s pop songs. I can't remember the words exactly, but it's a very famous song. But, but basically, maybe it's late 50s, uh, oldies, very oldies now kind of song. But basically, the, the, the point of the song is that this, this girl and the guy she was on a date with, the car broke down. And now she says, my reputation is shot because everyone's going to assume she's been out sleeping with this dude. And you know that, and now she'll be stigmatized. And she should be stigmatized. A society in which she is stigmatized is outstanding. Uh, and, so, uh, and so, but that's all gone. And the one that, was, that wasn't that long ago. I right. mean, I was alive, but it, it wasn't that long before, before I was born. And so uh, Christianity has failed the West. I think that that's true. Or maybe the West has has yeah, eroded Christianity. Um, maybe it's two way two way thing. I mean, obviously the the Catholics who for the past thirty years thought that Roman Catholicism was going to be the bulwark, and the Pope was so based, oh, you know, have been disappointed. <laughs> and so, so I don't know. I think you have to have a religious reawakening uh, yeah. among Christians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I um. I really just want um, whatever religion is. Uh, I want strong adherence to the Abrahamic teachings, right? Strong adherence to the Bible or whatever the religious book is, like strong, strong adherence. Not to the fact, you know, some of those things like, hey, you should beat your wife. Nah, I don't think that stuff we got to let go. But um, strong adherence to some of the homophobic rhetoric, Um where, you know, I don't believe that we should do something bad to gay people. I just believe that we need to set a standard uh, based around uh, heterosexuality and homosexuality should be hidden in the shadows in our content. Yeah, I mean, all sorts of thing, things that were stigmatized, social behaviors that were stigmatized, say, in the 1950s. A good starting point would be to say, well, you know, well, unless we can be proved otherwise, we should bring back all those behaviors. And, and if you, you hear a lot of propaganda, like everybody beat his wife back then. None of that stuff is true. All, mm -hmm. Much of what we hear as history is just lies told by told by various forms of people who went to destroy us. So, uh, you know, but like it's like the girl and you know, I just mentioned in, in the song. And the same thing, the same thing is true for homosexuals. You know, it wasn't that long ago that people uh, were stigmatized for bad behavior. They didn't, so they didn't flaunt their bad behavior in public, and everyone was happy, uh, as happy as they're going to be. Again, there's no perfect happiness. You just want to maximize the amount of happiness. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, let's talk civil war and secession. Uh, have you had to uh, put your tips down on a table and bet? Would you say we're going to head towards a violent civil war, or we're not? Um... I don't civil think, I think not in the sense of civil war in the way that most people contemplate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think not. Yeah, uh, and, I agree. And it's true, true along trivial axes, like there's not going to be people in blue and gray uniforms lined up shooting muskets at each other. <laughs> right. But I think that the, you know, everyone is like, Haywood is always, you know, calling for violence. I don't call for any violence. I merely say that on a historical basis. That, you know, as societies and the oligarchies that run society lose their grip, violence tends to to spring up along all sorts of, of axes. And the idea that I mean, the idea this is controversial is stupid. I mean, every change of civilization is sadly accompanied by violence. 
and and you don't even need change of civilization. I mean, you know, we've been treated this week to always on nobody's bingo card, which is officially declared war in Israel. I mean, what the hell? I mean, you know, and so uh, the I do think that since I uh, my premise is that our the regime, the oligarchy that rules us, is very fragile and will eventually lead to some kind of restructuring of the current American political system as these people uh, lose their grip on the levers of power and people who are hopefully uh, more um, suitable to helping the population of America gain grip on their levers of power. But the fact is that these kind of changes tend to have some level of violence associated with them. But I don't think we have a big civil war where states are fighting each other and so on. We might have various forms of civil conflict. We might have a flailing and dying government trying to, you know, bring this power to bear on people. You might have opportunistic military people saying, traditionally, this is one of the major drivers of violence, like Napoleon. Yeah, uh, look, look at all this this chaos. I think uh, maybe here's an opportunity for me, and I got these dudes, and they're armed, and maybe we should go do something. I mean, this, this, history shows us all sorts of things happen. So I don't think we're going to have an old-fashioned civil war, but I do think that this idea that Americans have that the default is everyone has peace and plenty forever is is unfortunately not the case. You said the the oligarchy is losing its grip. Why do you, why yes. do you believe they are losing their grip? I have a very long piece written on this called On the Fragility of the Current Regime. But, on, uh, hold on, it, hold on. On the Fragility of the Current Regime. Yes. I'm going to read that. So okay. I, I think fundamentally that the, the, the and uh, a guy named Michael Anton has an excellent piece at, at the New Criterion magazine, magazine called Unprecedented, where he analyzes kind of some ways in which the current regime has no analog in human history. So, for example, there's been plenty of oligarchic and extractive ruling classes throughout history. I mean, it's practically a joke, right? You know, most of ruling classes that start off good decline into, into money-seeking machines for a, a subset of, of the people. I mean, big surprise, right? But the you know, the, no no regime in history has ever, for example, deliberately tried to to immiserate and destroy the people over which it rules in the way that the current regime has, or engage in the kind of ideological ideologically driven behaviors that are destructive of the ver of the things that they rely on to line their own pockets. So some, some are related to that. I just, I just think, and it's, we can go into detail, but I think fundamentally the reason that the regime is fragile is because it's run by incompetence and clowns who are ideologically driven uh, and who know no history. And the, the, the natural end result of that is that not that the regime isn't powerful, the regime is obviously powerful because it has lots of you know, people and weapons and so on, but it's fragile in the sense that if there was ever a real crisis, it would be unable to, the current oligarchy would be unable to maintain its grip on the levers of power. Crisis like what? Well, a real plague, losing a war to the Chinese, an asteroid hitting us. Mm. I mean, history is full of, of civilizational crises that are brought to bear on civilizations. So er, the early, relatively early Roman Republic faced an existential crisis at the Battle of Cannae against uh, Hannibal, where something like 100,000 Roman soldiers were killed and, uh, and in, in Italy by a foreign invader, mm. and, uh, and who then proceeded to stay in, uh, in Italy. And, uh, and, and so instead, a lesser civilization would immediately have crumbled. And ultimately, the Carthaginians, that is Hannibal's people, faced the reverse, and they crumbled. But the Romans just dug deep and spent the next couple of decades fighting the Carthaginians and, and, and won. So whether your your society can withstand a crisis is the question of, of whether or not it's fragile. Did you fall for COVID-19? 
No. So I, in fact, I have a piece I wrote on my site uh, in May. You don't write uh, a piece about I, everything. <laughs> that I look back at now, uh, and uh, and I was I was pretty much 100% right. I didn't talk about the, the vaccines because that was pre-vaccine. But uh, like the first two weeks, I was like, not sure where this is going. Maybe I'll just stay home. Uh, but it became by two months in or even less. I mean, I, I stopped caring about it at all. Um, I got made a lot of money off it because I made hand sanitizer. I had a license to do alcohol, and I and so I mean it was the wild west back to the back to business. Uh, but the you know I I, I got to say I mean I know I'm egotistical, but uh, but the uh, I, I'm pretty proud of my uh, my uh, my COVID track record. That's nice. I, that's 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 so so you're a pure blood. Oh, I'm a pure, pure blood, and uh, and I you know, I quit making masks early. Like the only time I wore a mask was uh, other than I was forced to, like on airplanes. Costco reopened after like two weeks, and we were out of milk. So I go down to Costco, and it's this clown show where everyone's uh, spaced twenty five feet apart, and there are only like fifty people in the Costco at once. It was like a weirdest experience. But that was back when you weren't allowed to have a mask because masks had to go to first responders. So I, of course, being a paranoid, have a lot of survivalist stuff. So I had a very nice mask on, <laughs> and then I, and then and then after that, I'm like, this mask is stupid. So all the rest of my masks are still sitting in storage somewhere. Yeah, that's what happened to me. I was I was a masker when nobody was a masker, and then when everybody was a masker, I was a no masker. Yeah, are you a pure blood? If you don't mind my asking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I just I'm, and I, every day that passes, yeah, I just thank God that my family and I are pure bloods. Yeah. So, what was your piece on in regards to COVID? What were you basically saying in there? Well, the piece is titled "On Masks" because that was the the hot topic. But basically, I was my point was that that. It, I remember saying this very early on to my wife because in 2009, I don't even remember there was this SARS thing. Yeah, and, SARS and, cool. and my wife was in Australia at the time. She had a family emergency, and you know, I was afraid they would close the borders. They had all these videos of people in China dropping dead in the streets. I'm like, very early on in the COVIDs, I told my wife, I don't know what's going on here, but all this is bullshit. Like, you know, they're not welding people into apartment buildings. None of these people are dropping dead in the streets. Not sure what's going on, but this ain't it because yeah. I've seen this all before. And uh, and um, so the uh, uh, I wrote about in this is I think early mid May 2020, 20, yeah, 2020. I can't get my dates right. I mean, basically, I wrote too, like, you know, it's obvious that the only only people who have comorbidities are at risk. Uh, the average person is not at risk at all. Tell me, children are not at risk. That's completely obvious. I mean, all these things were obvious very early on. But they just, you know, they, they, they were lying to us. And now it's all kind of lost unless you have this kind of contemporaneous document that specifically says X, Y, and Z. And I have a personal experience. Like my aunt died during the, during the COVIDs. Uh, she was old and I brought, she was childless, never married. And I brought her to live close to me. And she got the COVIDs and coughed all over me. And I didn't get, I didn't get it till later. And, and, uh, and then, they, they wouldn't let her go back to her her retire her home basically uh where they'd confined her they sent her off to off to some specialized covid facility and she, three months later she died because she was lonely and and, and but then like covid death on her death certificate i mean there's, there's, she had like barely noticed the covid and she had three months but they just lied so even the old people who are the vast majority of people killed by covid um the wuhan plague as i call it are were were exaggerated but let's and I, I don't think i really talked about this in, in my piece but the biggest single problem with wuhan plague was 
a manifestation of one of the biggest problems facing our society, which is excessive emphasis on catering to the wants of old people. The fact is that while I don't want the government rationing medical care necessary, the fact is that young people with families get screwed all the time so that old boomers can have more medical care and so on. It, it, it just doesn't matter from a societal perspective that some person died six months earlier in a nursing home from the Wuhan plague uh, and it just doesn't, you know, just doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, sorry. And we shouldn't spend a bunch of money to stop it because you're old and that's the way the world goes. Um, so, uh, but the Wuhan plague was all about keeping, uh, it was old people safe because they were afraid and people who viewed the world through a hyper-feminized lens because they're afraid everyone's a pussy. You know, let's not do that. Uh, you know, I, let's let's approach this with a you know, rational approach. And that was what I called for in my piece. Like, we need to look at the costs and benefits. And it's clear that we're grossly over-exaggerating the costs and overstating the benefits. Absolutely. Understating the costs, overstating the benefits. Anyway, that long response so, kind of rambling. Sorry. No, I love that. So there were the powers that be that directed the narrative and then there were people that followed along right and many of those people castigated us and they told us we were stupid we were killing grandma whatever whatever right what are we supposed to do with the people that were wrong not the not the oligarch ruling class but everybody else who was wrong are we supposed to forgive them or you know in a utopian society um introduce them into some education re-education camps <laughs> Re-education camps are expensive. Um, uh, so, well, I think that the um, you can't separate the oligarchs from everybody else. That is, the people at the top who did all these things need to have exemplary punishments. I mean, they never will, but ideally you would have exemplary punishments. You know, Fauci would be caned on live TV, for example. I mean, that would be an exemplary punishment. And so, uh, and then I think back to what you said earlier about shaming. Yeah. When those things are accomplished and everyone realizes that this society identifies these people as malefactors who damage the society, then everyone who else who kind of went along with them would would feel that sense of shame. So even if they never changed anything or admitted anything, they would be they would know in their hearts that like I'm that guy, I'm lucky I'm not getting cane. Uh -huh. And on a very micro level, you know, around the Thanksgiving table, you know, say Johnny and Jane are cousins. Jane's a pure blood, Johnny's not. You know, Jane will make side comments about what a loser Johnny is because, you know, he should have been caned like Fauci. So, I mean, these things eventually work out in a way that doesn't require legal structure as much as re-education camps. I mean, Hillary Clinton is the one calling for re-education camps for Trump supporters. That's not going to work out. But but it's, uh, it, it, you know, I, I think that we, we just need a society to adopt an approach that, Kind of beneath the surface without publicity shames people who behave badly hopefully so they won't behave badly in the future and hopefully changes their thinking away from the lines of thought excessive focus on safety uh you know excessive focus on on not ignoring costs and benefits so in the future things will be better i don't think you i don't think a re-education camp would accomplish that at all i think quite the reverse but i think subtle social shaming would make a lot of sense i like that response because if you shame the oligarch, then everybody else has secondhand shame. Yeah. yeah I like that. All right. So I'm going to continue to shame. Good. Yes. Um, all right. Let's change gears here. You know, Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, don't say anything that'll get yourself canceled. I know you're smart enough not to do that. I'm just, 
give all my guests forewarning because it's a very touchy topic. Um, what were your initial reactions um, about the uh, conflict? Uh, whose side are you on, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I'm not clearly on on anyone's side, but if I, I mean, my my general, leaving aside the war, which I'll get to, my general belief is that uh, I would rather have, I think that uh, the the Middle East should be ru ruled by the emperor of Byzantium. Uh, and so, you know, the, in, in the ideal situation, neither the Jews nor the Muslims would control any of that area. And the Muslims who, ca who came around in the seventh century should be kicked out and go back to where, where they came. And, you know, uh, but that's not the world we live in. And last I checked, like the emperor of Byzantium wasn't knocking on the door. So uh, short of that, my goal is to ensure that the Middle East uh, is not you know, a hellhole and that it's beneficial and well-organized for Christians because it's important to Christians. And the fact is, despite that, there are Orthodox Jews who are, you know, you know, you know, are rude to Christians. The Jews are pretty good. The Israelis are pretty good to Christians in terms of the the structure of making the Holy Land available to Christians, and they do a great job of running the country. You know, it, it, we can, you know, leaving aside whether the GDP is fake, it's probably less fake in Israel. We can be certain that the GDP in the lands that are called Israel will be about one one hundredth of it is now if the Jews hadn't arrived in the uh, in the, in the last century. So I have a lot of admiration for the Israelis. I generally support the Israelis. It's a very difficult position for them because you know it, I once asked a friend of mine, well, why don't they just deport all the the people who are causing them trouble? And he's like, well, you know, Holocaust, bad memories, looks bad. I mean, yeah, they, this is a huge problem for them, and and they're you know now they're cutting off all the food and water and so on in Gaza, and I mean. It's a terrible, terrible situation. So what I think fundamentally, though, is the same thing as I think about the Ukraine war, which is that there's very little to do with America. Uh, and so if you know, the Israelis have, you know, they have an existential crisis, an existential problem. I admire them for their society and the fact that they have, they're the only developed society that has more than a replacement amount of kids, totally aside from the Orthodox. I mean, secular Jews have like three something kids uh, as well, and that's because they believe in something. And I think that, but this isn't America's job. Um, I think we should be giving no support at all to Ukraine just because we have no interest whatsoever there. I think that I'm not hesitant to say no support to Israel, but I certainly don't think we should get directly involved. And this is, this is, it's an unfortunate thing, but fundamentally we should adopt a position foreign policy wise across the board, much more, much similar to George Washington's you know, farewell speech approach, which is, for the most part, the stuff that happens outside our borders doesn't concern us. And and that's largely true of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. All right. We're going to come back to Israeli conflict. I just want to touch on Ukraine. Why do you think we're in Ukraine? You know, what's your tinfoil kufi take or, your, you know? <laughs> well, I, I think it's obvious. But of course, everyone who thinks something thinks it's obvious. It's obvious because the it, well, it's two things. There's a financial uh, incentive, but it, it, it's largely just an attempt uh, by you know, global American empires, they call it, to to uh, spread the the gospel of uh, what they call democratic liberalism, meaning late stage leftism, and force it upon as many countries as possible, inclu including Ukraine. And you know, you know, Putin's a bad guy, and uh, and you know, it, it, he, he throws people out of windows and so on. But yeah, you know, that's pretty much par for the course for for people who are who are running uh, you know, aggressive. Aggressive governments, and you know, ask Epstein about about what it's like to be uh, to be uh, interacting with governments. Uh, and the I think that uh, the Russians are a example 
a society with a lot of problems, but they're certainly not interested in having any of what the global American empire is selling uh, in terms of left-wing social thought and, and so on. And in a sense, what the American empire is selling is, is rapidly being placed on the remainder piles. Uh, the, it's a big problem for them if uh, the Russians wax in influence in the world and therefore pushing the war against uh, Russia's borders makes a lot of sense in, from the perspective of simply spreading late-stage leftism. I mean, it's obviously failing, and but this goes back to my point about regime fragility. When you're a failing regime, you do stupid things because everybody who runs it is a clown. Mm. Okay, so my theory is, going back to the Bolshevik Revolution, that these mm -hmm. globalists are still trying to get at Russian resources and they've been trying to get at those Russian resources for really for over a century. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's more of a continuation of that. And I think because we, it's not, it's not very smart to just try and invade Russia. That could be, you know, catastrophic consequences following Nash's equilibrium. Right. If you pick one of the other uh, uh, four quadrants. Um, so I think the next best thing is, well, let's just destabilize things around them and sort of corrode the borders of the nation. Would you mm -hmm. agree with that? I think, well, it was definitely true in the 90s. I mean, there was the entire Western approach was to loot Russia with the, with the cooperation of oligarchs rather than rebuild Russia. Uh, you know, they, they wanted to, to, to loot it. And obviously there are, I have no doubt, many people who would like to get back in on the looting. And if they can't get the looting, then looting Ukraine will, will do fine. You, you doubtless saw that Last week or the week before, Zelensky was meeting with various hedge fund types and business types to talk about uh, rebuilding Ukraine, which means fire sale of Ukraine's assets to Westerners uh, and, and you know fat payouts to Zelensky and his cronies who can go go emigrate. Uh, I just think that <clears throat> the idea. I find it difficult. I shouldn't say this because the history teaches history, meaning last week teaches us totally differently, but. It, the idea that you can that you're going to go back to a time when you can dominate Russia and take its resources, given the miserable failure of sanctions and the increasing relevance of Russia on the world stage and power of Russia in terms of soft power uh, on the world stage since since the war began, is obviously insane. And I don't know anything about Russian internal politics really, but it, the the common wisdom seems to be from serious people that if Putin disappears you're sure not going to like who takes his place. I mean, you know, you know Zelensky is not taking Putin's place. Hillary Clinton de doesn't get to pick his successor. It's going to be some guy you've never heard of who is, you know, you know, a lot more pissed and a lot more, you know, Russian nationalist. And that's not going to be good for anybody. But they, they imagine that somehow that we they can run a color revolution in, in Russia. I mean, these things are completely insane. That said, you're right. There are no doubt people who think they can do that, get away with it, and then enjoy the fruits of looting, looting Russia. Uh, that's definitely true. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, let's get back to the <laughs> Palestine conflict. Do you, do you believe um, all of the reports coming out of the war right now? I believe nothing. I mean, the, it's like, it's like the Chinese the early Wuhan plague uh, photos. I mean, everything's a lie nowadays. And, and the same thing is true for Ukraine. I mean, 99% of the things that we've been told about the war in Ukraine and major newspapers are, are, are lies. I mean, it is very difficult to get any kind of, of, of factual uh, information. But if you would go back to like June of 2022 and read Ukraine war headlines, I'm not sure it'd, it'd be like, it's, it, you know, it's reading just some set of fantasies. Um, the, I have no idea 
the problem is that nowadays everyone reacts on an emotive level, which gives people in the, you're the expert in this. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know much more about this than I do, but it seems to me that the people realize that you can get enormous mileage out of some fake video, and now we even have deep fakes. That's that's another thing. And and people like us who are, you know, we're sensible, smart people who like to be you know, think considered thoughts. We are like, well, you know, that's not really going to move the needle. But the fact is, it does move the needle because most people are sheeple, and and then they go call their politician and so on. And so I don't believe anything. I mean, I, I don't believe the statistics coming out. I mean, I believe that I see like pictures of bombs or whatever. But what does that mean? I have no idea. Uh, I, at the end of the day, you have to wait and see. And so, I mean, that's what we see in Ukraine. We saw that now that it, it, everything we were told is a lie, and the Russians are, are are slowly winning. And you don't know exactly what the numbers are, but they certainly look bad for the Ukrainians. We'll wait and see what happens with Israel. But to answer your question, I don't believe anything I see coming out of it. I just I just don't. I mean, so I, I tweeted out uh, Saturday. I woke up. I saw the fiasco online, and <laughs> you know I um, try to do some catching up. And uh, after about. 20, 30 minutes of scrolling, I'm like, okay, I know nothing more about this war than I did <laughs> before I woke up, right? Well, so, I, I had the same experience. I didn't tweet out, but I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, I woke up, I'm like, what, Israel, what, what are you talking about? I mean, it's really kind of weird because, like, you know, you didn't talk what you're expecting. You're like, what happened? Yeah. And, but, uh, but you're right. Hard to get informed. So my, my response was, okay, because... You know, being somebody who's an you know online thought leader or whatever the word I'm supposed to call myself, you know, people ask me, "What do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about it?" Right. So obviously, I have to make a statement, right? Mm -hmm. So my statement was, "There's a lot of stuff floating online. I don't know what to believe yet. So let's wait for the dust to settle, mm -hmm. right?" And people were like, "Oh my God, you don't think something happened over there?" And I'm like, "Wait, that's not that's not what I said." <laughs> I just want to know which video is valid and which one isn't, so I can react to the right one. <laughs> but you have you have the Israeli flag up, right? Yes, I, mean, I do. Right, and so you had, you had that short snippet a little bit ago with the the IDF shirt on, uh, <laughs> and so so I mean you you seem to have fairly clearly picked a side. What I, mean, I, I probably would be the side that I would pick if I had to pick a side. Yeah. But I mean, why make the statement? Yeah, exactly. Well, well, why did you? I mean, I'm curious. I didn't. I'm just trolling. Okay, well, fair enough. It, it, you know, I the Israeli flag was more of like, um. So the the the, the meta behind that decision is like, I'm on the right wing, right? Mm -hmm. fact, like I didn't have a choice in that. My my beliefs placed me there, and I know which way they're gonna go. They're gonna go with mm -hmm. Israel. So yeah. I was sort of like saying, "Hey guys, this is what you look like," right? Like when mm -hmm. the Ukraine war popped off, everybody put the <laughs> Ukraine flag in their bio. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird. When something happened in France, it was pray for France. So I was like, oh, here's my opportunity to be a flag guy, right? Put a flag in my bio, right? And, it looks and, good. Thank you. Um, I can't take it down. I wanted to take it down, but I can't because my profile is still under review every time you change your name. Um, but I just did that as a thought of experiment to see how would people react to that, right? Mm -hmm. And and what would happen and, and who says what? So you get like the black faction, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe you chose Israel. And, and to me, 
my position is it's it's above my pay grade. I I I I haven't picked a side. Mm-hmm. I've picked a side based upon anecdotal reasons, right? Like I had a Palestinian guy screw me in a deal, and I've <laughs> never and I've never had a Jew screw me in a deal. So I'm like, you know what? I'm with Israel, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, that it goes back to the, the under the surface social shaming I was talking about. You know, there's a lot to be said for social formation based on the things like that, right? Yeah. So I think that makes sense. Yeah. So I've picked a side based upon my own personal experience, but that has nothing to do with the Israeli-Palestine conflict yeah. to where I'm like, technically my view is, eh, it's none of my business. Yeah. And That's kind of my view too, ultimately. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't think America should be involved. Yeah. However, I think America and Israel married. So. Right. Much more so than Ukraine. Right. And I mean, Ukraine is just naturally is in the Russian sphere of influence. Like Taiwan is the Chinese sphere of influence. What we're doing over there is just dumb. Right. And yeah. I mean, we don't even have the excuse that Ukraine makes computer chips. And so but the Israel thing is, is, is not within somebody else's sphere of influence. And we are we are kind of kind of married. What I don't like is this idea, you know, this like Nikki Haley idea, or all these kind of neocon types on the right who are uh, an attack on Israel as an attack on America. I mean, that's not, that's just not true. It may be in our interest to help Israel out, but it's just not true. And it's not even a serious statement. I mean, if there really was an attack on America, they would be acting totally different and the whole country would be acting totally different because Mm -hmm. like 9-11, I mean, I understand this is probably Israel's 9-11 moment or whatever. But it's not our 9-11 moment. We already had our 9-11 moment. We don't need to have any more of those, please. So, yeah. and, and no one's treating it like that. So it's not a serious statement to say it's an attack on America. Yeah. Yeah. And um, even some of the allegations about rape are now coming out saying, okay, there's actually no proof behind some of that stuff. So, like, the dust is clearing. Yeah. I mean, uh, 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 and that's just goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is who knows what's going on. But things like rape accusations are very easy easy to make and and they stick in people's minds. And so, I mean, I'm surprised. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, um, you know, in regards to what you said, right? Like uh, a war with uh, Israel is a war on America, whatever, whatever. Uh, Nikki Haley, I really don't rate her, but I, I look at it as, um, I'm pretty sure Israel could handle themselves against those Palestinians. Mm-hmm. I don't think they right. Uh, uh, I think yes, that's no doubt true. But the real problem is, how do you solve the problem? And I was getting attacked on Twitter a little bit. I don't typically get a lot of hate stuff on Twitter, but I pointed out that ethnic cleansing works. Ask oppression, right? Mm. You know, what's, what, you know, Western Poland used to be was Germany for a thousand years, and you know the only Germans there now are tourists. Uh, and you know that's very sad for the Prussians, but that's what happens when you lose wars. You know, they, uh, you can understand the perspective of the the Russians and, and the Poland Poles in that case. But you know, the, it, what does it what does it even look like? I mean, so, yes, you can say it, it just it's objectively true to say ethnic cleansing solves problems, and the Israelis have this big problem because all this like making nice with the Palestinians clearly isn't getting them any closer to permanent peace. Quite the opposite. But I mean. Ethnic, I mean, ethnic cleansing by a first world country in the 21st century. I mean, I, I, I'm like, no one wants to go there. I mean, I don't want to go there. It's just I, 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 like, so what's the solution? I, I don't got a solution. I just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you believe in false flag operations? I mean, 
obviously exist throughout history and to a limited extent. But I think I generally am not a big big believer in large scale false flag operations. Why are you thinking? What are you thinking of in this context? Uh, Pearl Harbor. Well, Pearl Harbor, I mean, wasn't a false flag operation since it really was the Japanese. But it was de I definitely agree that Pearl Harbor was was known in advance, uh, at least to some degree, and was uh, was uh, allowed, uh, likely in encouraged, allowed in order to accomplish the Roosevelt's uh, administration's desire to take America fully into World War II. But I don't think it's a false flag because they really were Japanese. And when I say false flag, I would I would mean like people dressing up as Japanese and pretending to be Japanese oh. in order to, to, in order to, fa to fake fake it out. Okay. Uh, so maybe we're talking talking different things. I, I'm talking like full, like, I don't believe that you can run a, a false flag in my sense on a large scale. But I do think that people have hidden agendas that they allow people to do things even though they that they think will be beneficial for them, that are bad for the country, because they think it'll accomplish their goals. Yes. Yeah. So I use the term false flag loosely in that in that sense, right? Um, where you gave the literal sense, but I would look at um, the the border, uh, our border crisis, to be very much similar as Israel. Like we're letting these people in uh, in order to create chaos within our own country to create new legislation and more power for the oligarch, right? Yes. Stabilization. So that's. That's the angle I'm looking at this thing where I looked at Israel as impenetrable by a Palestinian, right? Mm -hmm. And to say some guys used a bulldozer and some bikes and crossed over, I'm like, I don't know if I could believe that official story. Yeah, I totally agree. And like for decades, we've been told that Mossad is so good at human intelligence, right? Like we rely on satellites, but like the, the, the idea that I mean, Mossad's entire stock and trade is supposed to be like, you know, getting, you know, compromising information on people, blackmail, girlfriends, boyfriends, you know, you know, this is what they're supposed to be good at, like running blackmail ops and sex ops and, you know, and, and like they can't get like any information out of any like mid-level Hamas guy, like before the day <laughs> of, just, this doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, or else they're just, they're, they're, they're like the, C, the CIA now where they, they're like that ad from last year where they they were pushing this woman. I have generalized anxiety disorder and I work for the CIA. Apparently I'm too anxious to go like, you know, run sex ops in the West Bank when the Gaza Strip anymore. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's weird. I agree. Yeah. It, it's something's fishy there. And, um, all right, let me not say anymore because <laughs> I got to appear on Fox in a couple of weeks. And I want to make sure they don't cancel my interview. Um, <laughs> isn't it strange that, well, it's not strange, but what is that where we have to limit our speech because of what's socially acceptable um, based upon other people's ignorance of facts and history? Well, I think uh, back to our earlier discussion, I think people should have to limit their speech to a certain degree simply because of social pressure. Yes. I agree it shouldn't be based upon ignorance, uh, but it's not based upon ignorance so much now. It's based upon ideology. You know, Left-wing ideology is triumphant, and so they want to suppress the ability of people to contradict them. Uh, but that's, I mean, it, it, there's always going to be some of that. You know, if I was running things, left-wing speech would be suppressed, not necessarily legally, but, you know, when, when, uh, when you say stupid things, bad things w would happen to you. This idea that somehow we, the marketplace of, of totally free ideas will lead to total happiness only works for an educated and virtuous, virtuous populace. So 
I, I think we should really have some limitations on speech. I just don't like the ones we have. Yeah, I like that because I definitely would come in with uh, Bolshevik style um, suppressions of speech. Yeah, I don't want to be too aggressive about it, but the fact <laughs> is that you know it, 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 you can't run a society with like if you, if you get on 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 camera and say things about you know I don't know how let me think of an example that's not uh, you know toxic uh um whatever you say inappropriate things about the relationships you want to have with children you know you should get your ass beat I mean, that's, that's the way it is asap um any other thoughts on israel before we go to some current news on cbdc's and ai um i do not have any other thoughts on israel good. um it's, it's really uh, confusing to me good i'm glad um because we need you. Um, let's do AI first. Let's pull up on the screen some AI, recent AI news. Do you use AI? Not at all. Are you opposed to using AI? No, I'm a techno optimist. Uh, and I'm a big on space travel and, and, and so on. So unlike some people on the right, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I, I also, at the same, same time, people believe people should spend more time on the land and farming. But I don't think those two things are exclude each other. If by AI you mean you know LLMs like ChatGPT, no, I don't, I don't use those those things at all. I'm not opposed to using them. My my opinion on AI, not that you asked it, uh, is 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 uh, I've been disappointed what it can do. That is, uh, it, the every time I look at it, it's uh, I've done various tests. For example, I used to run a woodworking shop very briefly as a side gig. I'm good at woodworking. I know how to do woodworking built-in bookcases in particular. And chat GPT, large language models and so on, are totally useless for anything that requires what Matthew B. Crawford, the philosopher Matthew B. Crawford calls tacit knowledge. That is things that can only be learned by doing. That is, if you type in with chat GPT, how do you do built-in bookcases? It will tell you and it will all be total bullshit. Uh, I mean, it won't be wrong, it might be wrong, but it won't be complete because it, you can't communicate the information in writing. And there's just no, even watching YouTube videos, which you can't reduce to writing very easily, don't, doesn't give it to you. You have to do it to learn. And there's a tremendous amount of things like that. And for things that is just, and leaving aside like the censorship and so on, just the tech, uh, I want to learn about the Battle of Nicopolis, which is in 1415, I think, one of the last, sometimes called the Last Crusader Battle. Is it 1415? Anyway, I'm getting old. But it, it doesn't regurgitate Wikipedia or some crap, yeah. which is bad enough. And so you really need to go to a book that has the Battle of Nicopolis. And I guess, I suppose for like writing descriptions of real estate houses or something, it's probably fine, I guess, but I don't have any use for it, I guess is my point. Nor do I think it's particularly game-changing. Mm. Damn, wow. So you tell me, I mean, you, you have a different perspective. So I, I, I have these arguments occasionally with people who are you know, very, think this is gonna change everything or like Mark Andreessen has written some stuff online talking about how, everyone's going to have a caring teacher who will support you. I'm like, I, I just don't see any of this. Mm, damn. See, I like your take because everybody's talking about AI becoming self-aware and all this dangers of AI. And I'm like, it's not that impressive now. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a language processing model. It's not doing anything fancy. No, and it doesn't think. And, but this is an example of what they call the first step fallacy. That is, 
this is the first step. We can imagine this is the first step towards strong AI, which is going to you know kill us all. And if we take the first step, all the other steps have to happen too. No, they don't. I mean, you know, maybe this is it. I bought this stupid thing that like teenagers can use to like write their term papers. I mean, you know, they'll harm our society further. I mean, what's the purpose of this? What does it accomplish? I can't think of anything it accomplishes that is valuable or helpful to society. Yeah. So my main usage is um, where I think it's valuable to entrepreneurs is it. Um, eliminates outsourcing to Russia and Pakistan as far as, you know, just personal assistance, right? It can do things that a personal assistant normally would do uh, and also allows people to create a proof of concept really fast, right? So back in the day, if you wanted a website and then a deck created and then copy and, you know, all the things you need to create a proof of concept, mm -hmm. technically I could launch a website with AI in five minutes and it would yeah. have all the copy for the product. It wouldn't be perfect, but it'd be up and ready to go to pitch, right? I can have mm -hmm. AI write my pitch deck and it would look like a, an official pitch deck and probably do a better job than I would because it just has more information. So uh, I see this as um, something that makes it easier for somebody who wants to start a business or run a business. You as a multimillionaire, you know, you've already, you're, you've already made your success, so I don't see why you would need it, right? No, I think that's true. But let's say I want to get back into business. I think you know the 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 act of thinking through the creation of the pitch deck is a crucial part of building your business. So you take this pitch deck and you go to some guy who has money, and then he starts asking you questions, and then you haven't thought about those questions because you didn't build a pitch deck. Some AI bot built it, and all the kind of false paths that you would have gone down building that pitch deck, but you decided not to include the pitch deck because you thought better of it because you evaluated all this stuff. You just don't have that knowledge because it's not in your head because some you know cretinous cloud thing you know built it for you. So yeah, maybe faster, but I got to think that the and the product may look as good, but what's in your head as the entrepreneur, not you, but you, the abstract entrepreneur, is is vastly inferior than would be in your head had you built the pitch deck yourself. I got to think that's the case almost all the time. Um, I disagree, but I also agree. Uh. I believe that the AI is only as great as the person using it because mm -hmm. if you don't input the right information, your pitch deck is going to be shitty. But if you've thoroughly thought through your pitch deck and you just need somebody to make it pretty and include some information and just write generic copy, then in that case, it's great. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. Cause I've seen, you know, I have this experiment I've been telling people to do is, ask random friends to use ChatGPT and say, hey, use AI and to do something, whatever you want it to be and watch how people use it. Usually people use it for idiotic things. Like, is Biden a good president? It's like, why, why, <laughs> like, why, why would you do that? You know, whereas some people might say, hey, I'm going to input, because um, this is a real something real I did. I put in uh, the sales numbers for my business and told it to give me different types of um, sales projections over the next six months. Mm -hmm. And then tell me the formula you use to do that, right? I use it as that type of assistant. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, maybe I should go back and put in, ask you questions about the business I was involved in. And that I could get a sense for whether it was it was doing things that made sense or not. Um, yeah. That's an interesting idea. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that and have a couple couple beers and uh, fire up my chat GPT. <laughs> I, I, I love, I'm in love with chat GPT. I use it every single day in my business. Uh, even like for customer service emails, I'll say, Hey, here's, um, you know, what the, the problem this person's having, 
um, here's my general response, write the email. And it just writes the email like some white secretary I paid $20 <laughs> an hour to do, right? <laughs> well, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, I, I, as an, my entrepreneurial style was always very much, I do everything. Like, oh, even when the company was, you know, past like 50 million bucks in revenue, I would enter all the bills myself. Damn. Um, but, uh, I mean, B2B is not as many bills, but right. I, I'm a control freak. So okay. maybe, maybe part of it is the fact that I'm psychologically damaged, unable to conceive of giving up control to some something in the cloud. Maybe I just need to <laughs> revisit, revisit my own, get, get my head shrunk or something. So um, that's me, right? I'm the control freak. And being an entrepreneur, or, or, you know, or actually being a consultant for businesses, I've consulted many startups, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that control freak doesn't work too well. You you have to at some point trust people to do things. Mm -hmm. So that was something that I sympathize with you where I've been learning to give up control for things. Otherwise, all of my time is just reserved to things that I really shouldn't be doing. And I think that's part of growing a business is knowing what you should be doing and what you shouldn't. Now you said maintaining bills. Maybe that's something you should have been doing because it's got to do with money. <laughs> uh, well, it's probably the reason I did it. I mean, by that point I had out, I mean, I had a great team with not that I managed to, I got lucky to have a great team, fantastic yeah. team of people. Uh, and I, so I was kind of left, they were so good that I had the time to do the bills would really be a better way of looking at it, right? If okay. I had to do all their jobs and do the bills, that would never have worked. Right. But I was sitting in my office twiddling my thumbs. And so I'm like, I'll just keep entering the bills. <laughs> yeah. and, and I was obsessed with the numbers. Like, and you're a numbers I would, I, I would get into the system on the weekends and people would be, oh, there goes Haywood again. I'm getting emails asking me questions about these numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, let's get into the, the uh, AI update of the day. Excuse me. G7 nations discuss AI regulation. Now, real quick, um, I hate regulation of all, all sorts. Um, so when AI came about, everybody's like, oh, AI is bad, AI is this. And I'm like, um, no, what's gonna happen is AI is like free for the public now. And what they're gonna do is they're gonna regulate it and raise the barrier to entry so you can't use it in like a year from now. Um, even if you want to start an AI company, now you're going to need a license and uh -huh. all these different regulations, things, which again, um, uh, I'm like, uh, Lindsey Graham here where everything's communism, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, a attack on the middle class, right? Because mm -hmm. AI can help you become part of the upper class. So yeah. I look at regulation as hindering that. So with this story today, what they're saying is. Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the UK, uh, US all have differing uh, opinions on monitoring companies' progress. They said the US opposes oversight, uh, while the European Union advocates for a mechanism to ensure compliance and publicly expose companies uh, violating the code. So there's not gonna be a law, but more mm -hmm. like, hey, we're gonna just expose and, and, and advise these companies, which you know law is usually gonna come thereafter. Because they always say, this is not a law, and then Sure. wake up next year a law <laughs> um so some of the things they say here is uh make reports on safety and security evaluations public and uh share information with organizations including governments and academia um report to you <laughs> report to you i 
Anyway, disclose privacy and risk management policies and implement controls for physical security and cybersecurity. And, and again, I believe this stuff can be handled by the private market. Um, yeah. Identify AI generated content with watermarking or other methods. Now that's something I'm very interested in, right? Where we saw all of these reports coming out of Israel, Palestine, and I'm like, can we get an AI bot that just goes, hey, this video is from three years ago. It's not yeah. recent. This person's a liar in real time. I would love to see that type of AI application. That's not what they're going to give us. You know, the people who are bad actors are never going to watermark their stuff. It's just going to be an extractive device for, for good actors. Bingo, pretty much. Uh, invest in research on AI safety. I'm like, what the fuck is AI safety? <laughs> I mean, when I see read the word safety nowadays, I assume it's just an attempt to control the political narrative. Like to prevent Europeans from asking qu inconvenient questions about all the people who keep showing up, you know. And you know, I I, I, I think the Europeans are bigger that, and the Canadians are bigger on that than the, than the Americans. But they they have this insane desire to, as they start to lose their grip on the populace, to prevent AI from saying bad things that are true because you know, oh. you know, like when you when you say you ask Chat GPT, you know. Why are there a bunch of random people, you know, looting in my small Swiss town or whatever? And it tells you the truth, which is that the politicians have let them in. Uh, you know, then that's the wrong answer. Uh, so uh, I, I got to assume it's something like that, as well as a rent-seeking, as the economists call it, device and you know, full employment for bureaucrats and NGO types and so on. Uh, so the example I would give is, you know, a, a AI that tells you the vaccine is unsafe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And they, there was uh, there was um, uh, there was some headline. I don't know the details. Where apparently Alexa, which is powered in part by something like that, was saying that the election. Everybody knows, you know, about the election, but Alexa was telling us all, which is not allowed, <laughs> about the 2020 election. So yeah, the vaccines. But they, 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 that's probably for Americans. That's a better example, right? It allows them to control the narrative around things like the Wuhan plague. Chat. I mean, reality has a right wing bias. Right. So an, an AI that is not controlled to deny reality is always going to be coughing up right wing things because that's the reality. I mean, not 100 percent. I mean, like right. that 5G thing last week where the 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 government warning signal was going to trigger all our phones to turn us into zombies. Yeah. That, didn't, that, that wasn't real. Right. So <laughs> so, uh, so that would. But, it, but things that are real, like concerns about the vaccines and so on, chat GPT will will not give the party line. And that's why when they say safety, I think that's what they mean. Hold on real quick. I, I got to have people do a mission because you just said something right there that was so prolific. Reality has a right wing bias. I need y'all to type that in and at the worthy house <laughs> and quote him. Reality has a right wing bias. Wow. That's a bar. That's a bar. You're like a modern day philosopher. Um, what else they say here? Prioritizing developing AI systems that address global challenges, including climate crisis, health, and uh -huh. education. <laughs> yeah. More theft from the people. Uh, adopt international standards for testing and content authentication. Uh, control the data going into the system to protect intellectual property and personal information. Again, I think private markets should be able to handle that. It is a valid mm -hmm. concern, you know, having my work stolen and my sure. voices being out there. Definitely a valid concern. All right, let's go to my um, pet project or pet study, CBDC. And we have an update on that. Okay, here it is. 
So uh, we have two updates here in regards to CBDCs. Are you familiar with CBDCs? Sure, generally. I'm mean, no, no expert, what, but... Uh, what's your uh, general take on CBDCs? Extremely negative. Extremely I mean, negative. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea, because I don't trust the government, right? I mean, you know, a, a government that I trusted, there's certain, seem like there might be certain advantages, but the reality is these things, these tools are, are not only would be, but are designed to control people because we already saw it in Canada and so on, the debanking. And debanking is in a world where people rely on, they're not living on a farm by themselves. So they rely on being connected to a financial network that's an extremely powerful tool, as we saw in Canada. I basically think any anybody who who pushes CBDCs at the legislative level or the administrative level should be run out of town on a rail. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I mean, you know more about it than I do, and tell me if you th if you you disagree. But the the whole, I mean, I, I'm generally in favor of crypto, private crypto. I mean, the problem with crypto is that the government still has too much control over it. Uh, but uh, but you know, the CBDCs just seem like like a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah, so there's a bill right now uh, in the House. Um, it just passed the financial uh, committee. Uh, I think uh, Emmer uh, introduced this uh, anti-CBDC surveillance act. So uh, the Democrats, obviously, they were like, oh, no, we need a CBDC because, well, they don't really have a brain. They just go along with whatever <laughs> they're told, sure. right? Like Maxine Waters. She's like, no, we need this for financial inclusion. And the funny thing is the main thing they're talking about with CBDCs is financial inclusion. What's that mean? Exactly. Right. It's, I mean, well, yeah. my interpretation is let's get black people and poor people into the conversation so they can convince everybody we need this. Uh, look. Black people and poor people want what everyone else wants, which is just dollars they can spend. I mean, you know, what are they use CBD, CBDCs for? I mean, that's, no, I mean, but that's typical for Congress, obviously. I mean, I spend no time paying attention to Congress because every, aside from occasional amusements like that McCarthy guy being thrown out on his ass, I mean, there's really nothing going on there that matters. So who cares? Yeah, big facts. Um, but yeah, um, so there's legislation. The Fed is like, we have no plans for a CBDC and we need authorization for, from Congress. You have no plans for the CBDC, but you're working on a project right now with MIT. Hmm. Sure, yeah. bro. Um, so here's the update. You were going to say something? I'm sorry. No, no okay. go ahead. Uh, Sam Altman had a conversation with Joe Rogan. I would love to see you be interviewed by Joe Rogan. You'd be my number one pick to love that. be interviewed next. Um, when I see him, I'll tell him if it hasn't happened by then, but I'm sure it's going to happen do. at some point. But yeah, when I see Joe, I'm going to be like, yo, you got to get Charles on. Um, so daily CBDC update. Uh, Sam says, I'm very worried about how far the surveillance state could go here. Super against CBDCs. And I think it's a valid take, right? The CBDC is definitely all about surveillance and control. Um, in fact, in regards to the um, inclusion, um, Africa was targeted uh, with the CBDC. Nigeria got one and it turned uh, uh, Nigeria into complete chaos. So they talked about, you know, CBDCs are going to help the unbanked. And in the real case of the unbanked in Nigeria, they were shafted and they had to resort to the barter system. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm not shocked by that at all. I, mean, I don't know the details, but you know, whenever people sit like that, say we're here to help the poor or the uh, people who aren't included, you know, you're being lied to. 
Yeah, y'all got to tune in to Charles, yo. He's for real. All right, so the next one here is uh, Federal Reserve Governor Christopher Waller. He says there's nothing revolutionary about the CBDC. He says it's unclear what's gained by CBDC. And he said this at the Brookings Institution Falk Auditorium hosted event. And um, at least he's speaking with some sense. Somebody that's over there at the Federal Reserve is speaking with some sense. Mm -hmm. Because not everybody's co-opted at the Fed. You know, some people are going to be like, yo, what is this? It's just digital. It's smarter than people in Congress. So some of them are going to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're they're definitely smarter. In fact, um, when Congress had a hearing, they had a lot of people from the private sector come in and weigh in on the CBDCs. But to circle back to the beginning of our conversation about Russia, China, um, my my deep tinfoil kuvi take is at the at the big table at the top, there is cooperation between the West, China, or let's just say the West and BRICS, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're saying, listen, um, and they're playing they're all playing with us like chess pieces, right? And um what I think is happening here is they're saying if we can get the CBDC in, then that's a way of staking ownership of their capital. And by capital, I mean people and controlling their people and monitoring the people. Mm-hmm. This is, you ever seen Batman and, and um, he's got this uh, thing that sees everything all yeah, across yeah. the city. That's what yeah. the CBDC is to me. Um, at least from the surveillance perspective, where you can see every single transaction, control every transaction, and then limit what people are spending money on. Um, so I, yeah, that's bad. Yeah, but but I think there is some cooperation that's saying, look, I'm going to put a CBDC for my country, and that's going to separate these people from your people. And now the United States has some real accountability of who's doing what and where because right Mm -hmm. now with cash you can't really do that you can't see every transaction but if every transaction is digital traceable and programmable you can even make projections on how to control the market how to control how people spend their money Mm -hmm. because certain incentives can be placed and programmed into the smart contract and says there's a 10 percent discount on x product or there's a Broccoli. premium on this one. It's, well, wasn't there, it was in New York several years ago that like banned the sale of Big Gulps or something? Yeah. And, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think, I mean, think Big Gulps make you fat, so you should not have too many, but you know, it, it, that's the kind of thing you would have. Pretty soon they would like mandate that you can't have Big Gulps. I mean, that's just, it's un-American. I mean, I say that unironically, it is un-American. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, maybe people should be stigmatized for having too many big gulps, but the government shouldn't have anything to say about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's just sad to me that black people are going to be used to pass this thing. Um, it, poor black people specifically. Um, and then the the talking heads of black women in the left. Black women on the left are like, they're like the German shepherds for the left. <laughs> have you noticed that? I haven't because I don't watch much. uh, I watch almost no TV, so I never see the talking heads. Well, I watch the Twitter and I see the talking heads like Maxine Water, Ayanna Presley, and then the ones in the media like Jamel Hill and um, or the one in Supreme Court, Katanji Brown Jackson. Right. Who? Yeah, I see references. But I I try because I'm old. I tend not not to watch video. So all I do is ever read 
read stuff rather than and see the talking heads. Oh, oh, see, I have to talk about the talking heads because of my profession. Yeah, it's I'm fortunate that I'm uh, I I don't I just don't have the patience to sit there and watch well, people well, yammer. Well, let me tell you, black people um, are being used to push legislation in this country. Well, I believe that. Yeah, yeah, and and legislation that works against us all steals our rights. You know, um, and it's just sad for me to see. I just, I just hate seeing it. And the CBDC is going to be brought about. You're going to see a big like Black Lives Matter, not Black Lives Matter literally, but you're going to see a big, you know, it's racist if you don't like the CBDC. Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know much about CBDCs. I haven't been particularly concerned about it. That you're starting to make me concerned about its you actual should. implementation. So now I have to go educate myself some, some more, and you know, buy gold or something. It is in my opinion, the most important topic to look into as far as the future of our nation. Oh, okay. That's a high recommendation. I will prioritize. <laughs> That's why it's the only thing, uh, the main thing I talk about in this channel, CBDCs. Um, I would start with um, something called Bitcoin's Evil Brother. Um, it's a video, um, and I think he wrote about this too by Cyprian, and he goes mm -hmm. into it in detail. Right. But um the name of the project is called Project Hamilton. As you know, ha uh, Alexander Hamilton is the reason why we have central banks mm -hmm. completely violated Article 1, Section 8, you know, left up to interpretation or whatever. And here we are. And yeah, and exactly. And here we are. Um, but, you know, Adam Weishaupt says, you know, you let me control the nation's money. I care not who makes its laws, right? So mm -hmm. um, laws are going to be enforced through the CBDC. Yeah, that's not going to be good. I, I totally agree. Because I mean, as as we came in on this conversation, the current regime sucks. So allowing them to con control things through the money supply is you know, a recipe for complete tyranny as opposed to partial tyranny. Yeah. Um, so you have this project. Um, what is it? The Waywood? Well, my website's The Worthy House. The Worthy House. Based, which is Which consists of my writings, which are largely book reviews or rather my own thoughts masquerading as book reviews as well as as some other pieces so um what's the website theworthyhouse.com okay and it's just basically you that's not an organization just me. or just cult me. me myself and i oh, all just, it's just you in that house yes oh damn i thought we had a cult going in well the reason i it was originally called the worthy house because i conceived of it as a multi-author multi-author thing but okay. then it just became just me so you know now just uh, egotistical bonfire of my ego. That's going to be um, my new favorite place. I told him in the green room, y'all. So my audience knows I don't listen to anybody online. Like people are like, who do you like listening to? I'm like, nobody. I just read books and stuff, right? <laughs> um, where I'm very much like you. I don't watch videos. I usually just read. Um, mm -hmm. Give me the facts, right? Um, but this guy right here, Charles, somebody I'm going to have to read and study. Cause when I usually dive deep dive into somebody pause, uh, I'll just binge on like, you know, a month straight and devour all of your content. Then I'm an expert on it. And then I'll go on to the next guy. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, you definitely want to glow into this guy. If you haven't figured out already, he's an absolute genius. Um, when it comes to our country and history and now I know why I used to go to history. Your dad's a, was a history teacher. So now yes. it totally, totally makes sense. Awesome. Yes, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, thank you for coming on my channel. Been an absolute pleasure. 
I'm going to have you back. I don't know when, maybe in a month or two love or something. To. But, yeah. you know, I got love so to. many things I love to pick your brain about. And that's going to be after I devour your content. Well, and, and no doubt the, the world will have thrown out many new surprises for us to discuss. So. <laughs> <laughs> we had nothing short on that. Awesome. Right. Thank H you. Hang out in the uh, green room. It's going to close out the show right yeah, here. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, another uh, great report. I will see you um, tonight for the Patreon show, patreon.com slash old testament told you uncle Hotep. Obviously we've talking about Israel, Palestine, et cetera, et cetera, and the new findings. And I'll be back tomorrow at 2 PM. Uh, Hotep and Bill.